If you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and turn in them to James 4, verses 7 through 10 is where we'll be at, James 4, 7 through 10. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are some in the back, and uh, feel free to grab one of those, take one of those with you. Today, if you are joining us for the first time this morning, we are in a series going through the book of James, who uh, is the brother of Jesus and the one writing this letter, and he's writing to a group of Jewish believers who were suffering persecution and living in poverty outside of Palestine. All right, now their circumstances were not as much the reason that James addresses them here as is the way they were living and treating one another as those who had been recipients of God's grace. All right, they were resting and trusting in what he refers to as earthly wisdom and living for their own selfish pleasures and passions and desires. And this, this had actually led them to quarrels and fights and all sorts of ungodly living in and amongst themselves. And so he's calling them to return to God and look to his wisdom, which comes from above. Now, last week we looked at how God yearns for and is jealous for his people, all right, for those whom he has shown his mercy and his grace to. Now, James, man, he isn't pulling any punches in this letter, and we continue to see that today as he addresses those whom he earlier calls an adulterous people. And just to be clear, he's not just addressing those who have succumbed to infidelity with just any other person, although I'm sure that that was taking place here, but he's actually talking to those who have been so-called cheating on the covenant of God, All right? Now, that, that's strong language for them, I know, but what we need to be reminded of this morning is that James is not just writing this passage for them, but for us, all right? And so this is a passage for me. It's a passage for you. It's a passage for anyone that claims to follow Christ and knows both the goodness of his saving grace and yet also knows the struggle that we often have of actually living to it. But the good news for us this morning is where Pastor Ronnie left off and ended our time together last week, which is that God through Christ receives humble sinners tenderly. The good news is that that's not just a one-time truth. Right? That's for us continued. That keeps going with us. This is the very essence of grace, and James wants this to be the driving motivator away from worldliness and towards godliness, living lives of humility because that's where grace abounds and wisdom from above is found. And the question we ask then is this. What do we do with that? Right? What, does, what does humility look like? What is required of me what does it mean to live in the weightiness of God's grace? Well, James 4, 7 through 10 shows us. So if you have your Bibles, let's read there this morning. It says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And well, James starts out here with this overarching call, all right? Submit to God, but what does it mean? What does it mean to submit ourselves to God? 
Well, it means bringing our worldly desires and passions before him to be realigned and reordered to the authority of his. And where we find God's passions and desires are in and through his word. All right, so we ultimately submit to God by submitting to the authority of what his word commands. And in this way, submission to God is not just merely an outward action, but it's an inward redirection. Right? It's something that must take place in the heart before it can ever be outworked through our actions. Because it's otherwise actually not a willing submission, but a begrudging one, which is actually not really submission at all. It's like when you tell your kid to do something, and this may seem really simple to some of you, but what you are actually asking them to do, and rightly so, is to submit to your authority over them. Sorry, kids. Now, they can do that willingly or they can do that begrudgingly, can't they? And the hard thing for us here is that sometimes they can do this with the exact same outward result. But which do you want? Which one pleases you the most? Well, you want them to do it from a heart that desires to love and please you, don't you? Now, they may fake that for a time, but eventually it's going to be revealed that they really don't want to be doing the thing that you're asking them to do. And where's it going to come out? It's going to come out in their actions, all right? You're going to ask them to put their toys away that one day, and they're going to walk over and throw those things away like their entire life has just ended. All right? That is not a heart that's submitted to dad's authority, is it? And we laugh and we chuckle at an example like that, and yet there's... Uh, a way that many of us, if we're on, honest, we find ourselves living our lives towards God in that way. And this is what James is going after here, all right? External submission alone means nothing without having an inward one. Now, to be clear, a heart that struggles with the desire to submit to the authority of God doesn't set necessarily mean it's never been submitted to God. But it may actually be that that heart is so set on its own fleshly desires that we're actually unable to see his. All right, this is what James, or this is what Paul actually tells us in Romans 8. He says this in Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And so what we are seeing here is that submission to God is not just a part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. And it's the reason that James begins with it here. He's, he's calling us back to the initial humility and submission we had towards God when he saved us. All right? No one, listen to me, no one has ever come to God or will return to God unbowed. And the recognition of our neediness that his word reveals to us should never be something that we attempt to just lift out of, right? The weightiness of God's grace is like an anchor that must hold our hearts to that. Because if you're like me, which you are, even as a Christ follower, there's still in this life a part of you that struggles to submit to the authority of God in your life. There's a part of you that doesn't even like the word submit it wants its own rights. It wants to feed its own passions. I feel that. 
I mean, I would be lying to you if I told you that the first thought that I have as I open my eyes every morning and try to get out of bed is one of instant submission to God's authority. All right, I'm just, I'm just trying to remember if I turned the coffee maker on last night. That's what I'm trying to do in the morning. But what I generally wake up with is a to-do list of things in my head for the start of my day, the things that I want to get done. All right, now, the problem there is that there are way too many my's and I's in that sentence. An even bigger problem is that to some degree, I, I actually like that. This is why an ongoing life of submission to God's authority, which his word provides, is so essential. It's essential that we have it deep within us, that we hold tight to its promises and we set our minds on it. And it's through this ongoing submission that we're able to do what James then says next, which he says is to resist the devil and draw near to God. Verse seven, let's look back at the text again. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. These calls, they go hand in hand as they really are two sides of the same coin. All right, Dr. R. Kent Hughes says, there are two views that the Christian ought to cultivate with all that they have, the devil's back and the face of God. You cannot draw near to God without resisting the devil and you can't resist the devil without drawing near to God. Now, to resist the devil does not mean that we just blame him for our sin because Satan doesn't actually force us to sin. He simply entices us into our own desires and that's why it's so essential that our desires are God's desires and not selfish and worldly desires. That is the problem that James is addressing here with them, right? The only way to truly resist Satan is by having our desires reordered to line up with the authority of God's word. And so then you're probably wondering, well, how do we do that? How do, how do I grow in that desire for the authority of God's word? Well, we ask, we pray. Drawing near to God in its essence is prayer. And the promise here is that when we do, he will actually draw near to us. I mean, do you honestly think that if you go before God and you ask him to help you in the desire to obey him, that he's going to say no? I mean, I am a very, very sinful father. And if one of my kids came to me and said, Dad, will you help me desire to obey you? There's not a parent in here that would say, nope, sorry, I actually like it better when you don't. Like, just keep going that way. Is your desire to obey God lacking this morning? Is it something you're having trouble with? When was the last time that you asked? Could this be what James was talking about when earlier in verse two he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This would not be a case of us asking something wrongly. This would be a case of us very much so asking something rightly, knowing that when we do sincerely and humbly, God will draw near to us and he will give us the desire to obey his authority. And it's through this desire that we can truly then resist temptation, Satan's temptations towards the gratifying pleasures of our own hearts because they're actually being reordered and they're becoming less and less a part of us. And we look to Christ as our perfect example in this. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, if you have them. 
Luke 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels there, just a few books back. Luke 4, verses 1 through 12. This is where we see Jesus resists Satan's temptations to try to get him to sin. And it says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And, when, and he had ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so he being Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Notice there what Satan uses in verse 10 to try to tempt Christ which is the very thing that Christ desires most, which is to obey his Father's word. Now Christ combats the way Satan attempts to twist God's word with you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But this should show us that our desires not only matter to God, they actually matter to Satan. And that's not a scare tactic, that's, that's a word of warning, all right? Sam Alberry says, Satan is not to be unduly feared, but he is also not to be ignored or trivialized. Satan's sneaky, he's cunning, and he will try to attempt to take you out with what you desire most. So ultimately to resist the devil is to turn towards God that we may desire what he desires. And we do this through prayer and the power of his word. This is the effectual weight of God's grace. This is what Jesus did. And if you're thinking, yeah, but Scott, that was Jesus. All right, what about me? What if I've messed up? I mean, I relate more to the ones receiving this letter in James and the way that they are acting than the way that Jesus acted. And the promise of God and what James is getting us to here is that no matter how bad we've messed up, there's hope for those who humble themselves and repent and return to him. All right, and this is how we do that which is my next point this morning, which is we remit and we have remorse over our sin. We remit or we stop and we have remorse over our sin. Look back at James 4 with me. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Man, those are hard words, but those are James' words. They're not mine. In fact, they're as much for me this morning as they are for all of you. Here, James points back to Old Testament imagery with ritual cleansing and sacrifices of purity. But this is a call to repentance is what it is. 
And again, what he shows us is that humble repentance will not only be worked out in action, but renewed inward desire, all right? Purity of heart. It has to be. It always has to be worked out in the heart. I know it probably sounds like I'm just repeating myself this morning, but it always, 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 always goes back to the heart, all right? The reason that I fail miserably at almost every diet that I've ever done is because while I'm eating those salads with Ronnie 19 times a week, I still really want a Five Guys burger with a large fries and a large sweet tea. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. So James says here, don't just stop sinning. I mean, stop sinning. Cleanse your hands, but you also must purify your hearts or else you will just remain in double-mindedness and you will fall to it again. All right, so how do we do that? Well, again, we, we draw near, we pray, we ask. Here's how King David did it when he abused and had taken advantage and uh, wanted to repent of what he had done to Bathsheba. He prayed this in Psalm 51. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now pay a close attention to this last part. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And that's a prayer that we would do well often to pray. Because only a pure heart and a willing spirit can sustain us in an ongoing fight against sin. And only God can give us that. And if we ask, will give us that. And James doesn't stop there though. He goes on to say, someone who is living in the weightiness of grace also has remorse for their sin. All right, a sign of a truly repentant and humble heart is when we are truly devastated by our sin. And this is what James is saying here. He's not saying that there's no place for joy in the Christian life, right? That would be contradictory to everything he's written. He literally starts this letter off with, count it all joy, brothers. But what he is saying is stop making a mockery of God's grace. See, we'll only rightly understand the weightiness of God's grace when we take seriously the weightiness of our own sin. And this is not a call away from joy, but to it, to true joy. But we will never have true joy without truly mourning over our sin. All right, the gospel is always bad news before it's good news because that is the very thing that leads to humility and therefore the very thing that leads to grace. I want you guys to hear me in this this morning because it's, it's serious. A heart and posture that is not broken by their sin is a heart that God will not receive. Anyone who attempts to just clean themselves up or cover up their sin will experience no freedom from that sin. This is what David says later in Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Man, I know that's heavy. It should be. But it's a heaviness that leads to hope. It's the weightiness of God's grace. The final call from James here is humble yourself. Verse 10, look back at the text with me. He says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And it's so interesting that James goes back here to humility. 
Remember in verse six, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So why does James then sandwich this list of things with humility? Because it's the humble that receive God's grace and it's the weight of this grace that leads us to a life of submission to him in which we can resist the devil with the promise that he will flee, that we can draw near to God with the promise that he will draw near to us, that we can experience a life of sanctification through ongoing confession and repentance of our sin, but it's also the humble that recognize in this life that we will never attain those things perfectly. And so this is also a warning not to become puffed up in those things. We cannot rightly sing God's highest praise if we are inwardly and outwardly shouting our own. What I mean is this, if we are not careful, even these things can lead us to becoming puffed up and arrogant, thinking we're somehow more spiritually elite, and this will actually lead us away from humility and instead cause us to become judgmental as we'll see in next week's text. And so we must never graduate from humility, from being lowly and poor in spirit, no matter the amount of growth that we may experience in all of those other things, because actually that growth is not from you, it's Christ in you. Watchman Nee, a pastor and theologian from China in the early 20th century says this, only the poor in spirit can be humble. He says, how often the experience, growth, and progress of the believer actually becomes such precious matters to him that he loses his lowliness. Lack of humility and pridefulness towards God don't always take on the form of outward ungodliness blatant rejection, or even worldly living. Sometimes it takes on the form of outward submission with no actual inward renewal. No one has ever submitted perfectly to God except Christ, nor has anyone ever resisted the temptations of Satan in every action and motivation outside of Christ. Remember who James is writing to here, right? Jewish believers, they knew scripture. Right? Some of them, I imagine, at one point in time may have even been Pharisees. Their problem wasn't that they didn't know the truths or appear to submit to the authority of God's word. Right? They could probably recite scripture better than most of us. It wasn't that they didn't resist the devil. They were often sometimes some of the best rule followers. And they would even tear their clothes in the streets as signs of repentance. Their problem wasn't outward actions, it was inward motivations. They did these things to hold others down, to be viewed as the spiritually elite, not as the spiritually weak and lowly, not as those who were in need of a savior. Jesus has strong words for those who do this. He calls them hypocrites in Matthew 12. And he tells them that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but that those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a scary thing to be in the eyes of God a self-exalter and need humbling. Scary in a good way. And if you're thinking, yeah, but how can we know that God will exalt the humble and the lowly and the poor in spirit? Because if I'm being honest, that goes, every, goes against everything that's in our culture, all right? We don't think humble ourselves. We think assert ourselves, rise to the top, lift yourself up. How can we know then 
that something that feels so wrong, God will do when he, when he exalts the humble. We can know because he's shown his faithfulness to do so in Christ. And that is the great news this morning for all of us who humble ourselves, which is that we will be met with the weightiness of God's grace and exalted as Christ, who in his humility has been exalted. Ours is future, his is done. And this is the paradox of Christianity, that through our lowness, we will be brought our highest. Right? That's what living in the weightiness of God's grace means. My wife Kathy and I, we, um, we honeymooned in the Great Barrier Reef. Now, what might come as a surprise to some of you about this is that I'm actually deathly afraid of the ocean. Like, super scared of it. Um, I don't know if it's the depths of the water or those great big sharks that, you know, think you're a Big Mac, but I just, I just don't like it. But she had convinced me one day to uh, go out on a snorkeling charter, all right? So we finally go out, and it feels like what's the beginning of a really good horror film. Um, we get on this jankety old boat with a matching captain, and there's this one other Swedish couple with us, and neither one of us can communicate with words because we don't speak the other's language. Now, I don't know how you can communicate with your eyes that you think you're about to die, but I did. <laughs> and so we, we get out there, we finally reach the spot that we're gonna drop in at. They all get off, I've got my wetsuit on, and I'm sitting on the back of the boat, feet kinda in the water, you know, hitting it, getting right with God, you know, just making sure everything's good. And I finally jump off, and there had been a storm about a week before, so the top of the water for about three foot was pretty murky. So the guys told me, you're gonna have to dive down. I said, oh yeah, am I? Am I gonna have to dive down? Like, <laughs> so I, I finally dive down in there, and I'm swimming down for what feels like forever. Now, if you've dove underwater, you know as you go deeper, the weight of the water is more present on you. You feel it, all right? And I'm swimming down, it finally opens up, and it's everything that you've seen in pictures. It was beautiful, the coral, all the colors, all the fish, it was amazing. Now, this analogy breaks down because I quickly shot up like a torpedo when I saw a big fish and I was back on that boat. <laughs> but humility doesn't just dip its toes into the sea of God's grace, all right? Humility dives down deep in it to feel its weight and to experience its beauty. That's what James wants for them. That's what he wants for us. This is, this is not a letter condemning them. All right? It's a letter calling them to return to the weight of God's grace, which is given to the humble. And so then, what's all that mean for us this morning? What's the call for us today? Well, the call is everything that we just went through, but I realize it may hit some of you differently. All right? The call this morning for some of you is this. It's to humble yourself for the very first time is to submit yourself to God's authority. Maybe you have lived a life up until this morning in pride and you think that, man, this is just your own authority, master of your own destiny. But God did something in you today and you want to respond by submitting to him. Right? You have a desire to not live in your own ways and you want to turn from your sins and resist the passions and pleasures that go against his perfect authority and draw near to him. And the promise there is that he will draw near to you, as we just read. And I encourage you, if that's you, to pray to him now. Do that now. Confess and repent of your sin. Ask him to purify your heart and to be ruler over your life.
Maybe some of you have considered yourself a Christ follower for years, but you have become somewhat puffed up towards God's continued authority in your life. Or, or maybe you actually see yourself as doing some of the things we talked through this morning a little too well, maybe better than others, and you think of yourselves as being better than them. And you need to resubmit yourself to him and humble yourself for the thousandth time. Maybe that's you this morning. Whichever place that you find yourself in, the good news for both remains the same, which is that in doing this, we will be met with the weightiness of God's grace that flows down freely to the humble. And we have comfort in Christ who pulls us then into himself and who in his humility has been forever exalted and therefore secures the promise that we will be too. Let that weight and the promise of God's received grace be the thing that you all leave here with today. All right? Let's pray. Father, we sang this morning, uh, but let us be reminded again now of the gift and the weight of your grace who is Jesus, our Redeemer. God, do a work in us this morning. We don't want these things to just go in one ear and out the other. And so commit them to our hearts now. Grow in us a desire to submit to you as ruler of our lives and remind us that even in our failings, we can always humbly return to you and you, we will be met with a loving father who draws close to us. Gosh, what debtors we are of such richness of grace. And I pray it turns our hearts to praise and thanksgiving now as we sing. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.